We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. You know, they're they're those cute baby birds. They've uh, they've been quite a delight for the household. We just. Uh, you know, we said goodbye to the last baby bird who grew up maybe like a month ago, had spread its wings, literally, and flown away. But then there are two more baby birds, and it's just very exciting. One baby bird replaces another. <laughs> well, it gets replaced by two baby birds, so it's... Oh, yeah. So it's just going to keep exponentially growing next it will be four baby birds and then eight baby birds it's a cute version of what the coronavirus does <laughs> uh, anyway shall we talk about this book while the internet is okay all right so i guess it's my turn to do the intro right yeah <laughs> hello <laughs> welcome to reread the podcast where we reread books and see if they Told up or our feelings changed or whatever it is we're we're feeling. This week we're doing Prince Caspian or maybe called The Return of Bacchus. I feel like that should be the real name here because uh, we we get Bacchus. She don't want you here. She don't want you here. I don't want you here. She doesn't want you here. She doesn't want you here. You're nothing but a problem. Get out and go home because I'm done. And oh. In our order, we've waited two whole books for uh, one line in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to like have any sort of relevance. <laughs> and of course, the question is, does it actually have relevance in this book? Uh, spoiler, no. <laughs> You know, I figured out why I did not like these books as a kid. I finally figured huh. it out. And the reason is they are so fucking boring. They're so boring. I, I'm just going to jump in here since we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but I'm guessing, what were your memories of this book? Because I... My memories actually kind of correlate a little bit with what you said, so I'm curious what you remember. So the thing is, I had no memories of this, and I th and I think I figured out why I had no memories of this. And this is something I said in the last episode about how, at the end, where you were saying you liked the scene in the desert, where they're traveling across the desert. And I said, I did not like that scene. Uh, we just kind of left it there. There was already enough negativity from that episode. <laughs> um, but this book is basically the desert scene three times over. <laughs> and it is just... And I think this is partly just me. And maybe it's partly C.S. Lewis in that he's not very good at filling in those gaps between point A and point B with stuff that will hold my interest. But it's just almost this entire book just feels like filler. <laughs> so it it's just I was so dreadfully bored. And I think as a kid, I read them in publication order. Mm. In this book, they're like literally there are 60 pages devoted to a flashback. So <laughs> it's it's uh, 
Yeah, so uh, right before I give the summary, I'll just say, so this was, like, I think my second favorite of the Narnia books as a kid. <laughs> Potentially third, I feel like Voyage of the Dawn Treader and this one went kind of back and forth. And my memories of it were pretty, I remember, though, as a kid, I thought, like, half this book was really fun and great, and then half of it was really boring. I misremembered, actually, how much of it was the part I thought was boring. <laughs> So it turns out, like, the things that really bored me about this book were, like, uh, one, a little bit of the flashback with Caspian, and then two, Lucy and Susan's part with Aslan and the end. And that last part, I thought, went on for, like, multiple chapters. (laughs) It's only one chapter, but that speaks to how boring I found it as a child. But I I remembered most of the rest of this book, so I definitely picked up on, on different notes this time. But, all right, summary. Prince Caspian, we've come back to our main quartet. It's been a year since Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy went to Narnia. And now they are all traveling back to boarding school after, you know, summer holidays. And they're all kind of glum about this. But suddenly they start feeling this tug, all of them. And they are pulled into Narnia. And they don't really know where they are in Narnia. They spend a decent amount of time exploring this very, like, dense forest. And there's this ruined castle. But it quickly becomes apparent to them that the ruined castle is actually Care Paravel, which was their own castle back when they were kings and queens of Narnia. And that actually a whole bunch of time has passed in Narnia since they were last there. Even though it was only a year for them, it's been, like, thousands of years in Narnia. And I don't think it's said in the book, but... For whatever reason, people have said like 1,300 years have passed or something like that in Narnia. I don't know how where that number is coming from, but that's the number I saw. I think they can probably figure it out with roughly, like, I think you get to hear like how many kings and stuff there. I, I'm sure either C.S. Lewis gave some information outside of the book or like you can count through essentially rulers. And I do think you learn a little bit more about some of the past kings of Narnia in the other books. So they figure this out, and then they uh, come across a dwarf who these, like, soldier guys are trying to drown, essentially, and they save him. And from the dwarf, they find out about how Narnia has been taken over um, and conquered by these people called the Telemarines, and that basically the Telemarines have been trying to suppress, like, the native people of Narnia, meaning, like, you know, the talking animals and the dwarves and the sort of magical creatures. And the uh, current king of Narnia has essentially stolen the throne from his nephew, Caspian. And Caspian, upon like discovering all of this, he has run away to try and find the talking beasts and the magical creatures. And he is essentially leading a revolution to take back the throne for himself and for like native Narnians and he has Susan's horn and he blew it in hopes of gaining some sort of aid from someone and it's that that dragged the Pevensies back to Narnia and now they have to go try and find him so they (laughs) venture they have some little kerfuffles they have a really interesting moment with Aslan that I'm really excited to talk to you about and Eventually, they reunite with Aslan first, and Lucy and Susan go off with him to, like, reawaken, like, the Dryads and the Naiads and the people of Narnia. And then Edmund and Peter go to help Caspian with, like, war things. Peter ends up fighting in a duel with the king, and then, like, the king is stabbed by his treacherous people. And then 
there's a battle, but it's all ended by Aslan riding in with, like, the native Narnian people, including, like, Bacchus, and they just totally win. Caspian is thrown. Then they discover that the Telmarines actually came from our world through a portal, and those who don't want to stay under Caspian's rule, Aslan allows them the opportunity to go back to their home world. And then he sends the Pevensies back as well after telling Peter and Susan that they will not be able to return to Narnia. They're getting too old. And the last thing we find out is that Ed left his flashlight in Narnia. I will say, in terms of first and last lines, the Narnia books do not kill it. They are the worst. (laughs) I do want to comment because when you said, I think the way you put it is that eventually the kids run into Aslan. I just want to note that takes 40 pages. I'm just going to go on a rant right now because I need to get this out of my system. You know, I was very excited by the first two pages of this book because literally that, that scene you describe of the kids being pulled into Narnia takes two pages. It just blasts us into the story and i'm like ooh, i'm so excited it's just we're gearing up for the story like there's no time to waste turns out i was completely wrong because they spend the next 30 pages figuring out where the hell they are and then they spend the next 60 pages talking about prince caspian and his background or whatever and then they spend the next 40 pages going up a river going down a gorge backtracking that same gorge and then going around the gorge, and then eventually they meet Aslan, and they go to meet Prince Caspian, and and then they have the final battle. But then the final battle, you know, it's like it takes like 80 billion years to, to happen, and for whatever reason, Prince Caspian has no involvement at all in the final battle. It's Peter who's dueling the f***ing, you know, usurper. Prince Caspian, he, it's so weird that this book is called Prince Caspian. And I agree with you. Return of Bacchus would have made more sense because (laughs) Prince Caspian has no goddamn role in this book. He doesn't do anything. He just just sits there as other people do the things for him. And And it's just like, why do you even name this book Prince Caspian? He's not even a main character in this book. He's just sitting there. And you're just waiting around for things to happen. And then the story just ends. And you're like, that's it? What is this book? If you want an example of how not to pace your goddamn book, read this book because it has the longest first act. It's only like 200 pages. The first act is literally half of that. And then they spend like almost the next 50 or so pages actually getting to him. I was so frustrated by this book, Morgan. I was so frustrated by this stupid book. It's just nothing happens. Prince Caspian does nothing. He has no character arc. His character arc is becoming king, but he doesn't even have an active role in that. He's just being told by people, do this, do that. And it's just like, Oh, well, thank God he's king now. I guess he's just going to do nothing but what the dwarves say. It's just... (sighs) Yes, the book is pretty clearly about the Pevensies and not (laughs) Cassian. That's pretty evident. I, I think that 
I love this book partially because I think this is where you actually get characters for those those four, and especially Lucy and Edmund, I think, really develop their own little individual personalities, which is important because they'll be our leads for the next book. And I have thoughts about Susan because actually there there is some solid, in my opinion, solid development for the last battle for why she wouldn't be able to go back to Narnia that's set up really well here. That makes me wonder then why, well, we can get into that. But yeah, I, I agree. I think Peter's still a freaking wet blanket. I mean, yeah. he he's just the most uninteresting boy. boy in all the universe. And thank God he he has the starring role in the climax. But what I love about the climax is that you hear Edmund narrating it. Most of the time, you're not actually watching Peter directly because they're having a hard time seeing the duel. And so you get Edmund narrating it, which, like, I enjoy in a weird way because I think there's something interesting about the ways in which like someone would narrate a fight that I think I think you get Edmund's personality through how he's narrating that fight like he at one point like I think Peter knocks uh the evil king whose name is Miraz to the ground and Edmund's like oh he's waiting for him to get up he would like and you know Edmund little Slytherin that he is (laughs) would be like boom (laughs) you out and like I love the little character moments you get like that when the duel is narrated. I mean, obviously, there's the battle after that, but it doesn't really count. The duel is really the climax of the story. And I personally think it's really fun in a different way of showing a duel. But I fully understand that, yeah, like Caspian is not at all a lead character in this story. He is a plot device. So if you were going into this looking for Caspian content, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> this is why in the, the movie they made of Prince Caspian, they added a whole bunch of stuff. I remember distinctly disliking it. One of the things they add is a romance between Caspian and Susan to like give him something to do. And there's a little bit more of the flirtation with the White Witch. Um, there is in this book a little scene where one of the dwarves, Nickelbrick, is like, Look, Aslan isn't showing up for you, Caspian. Neither are these old kings and queens, if they were even existed in the first place. But we know the White Witch was real, so let's bring her back to life. And there's, like, that little scene, which is super creepy. And I think, I mean, I loved it. I don't know about you, but I was like, cool, the creep factor. I actually liked that because there was actually some freaking tension in this book. But they build that into a whole thing in the movie, which is like, I do not recommend the Prince Caspian movie. I do recommend that one particular scene because they literally have like the White Witch's body encased in ice. And she's like talking and trying to like persuade Caspian and then Peter to like unleash her. And they both almost do. And then Edmund stabs her in the back and is like, I've already been basically like seduced by her. I'm never going to let that happen again. Like, how could you guys even listen to what she's saying for a second? It's a great scene, but it's not in the book. The book is just a, a hag and a werewolf and Nickabrick trying to persuade them. And it is still a very cool, creepy scene. And then there's a cool, creepy fight in the dark in which Caspian has maybe turned into a werewolf. I think it, I thought it was silly that they're fighting in the dark. And then it just so happens that all the bad guys die in the, the process. And it's like, okay. And then, yeah, like, Prince Caspian gets bit by the werewolf, but there seem to be no consequences for that. But you know what? Maybe he's a werewolf now. Maybe that's the secret narrative, Casey. He's a werewolf. Team Jacob all the way. I mean, that would have been far more interesting than what <laughs> that's happens. That's his character development. 
<laughs> I have to I do have to say that you know a big problem of these books is that when you have literally god on your side the stakes feel pretty wishy-washy. It's like, okay, you know who's going to win. I don't know. All right. It's... <laughs> Why don't we, since we have less of a, like, I think a grounding topic to be talking about with this book, maybe we should just kind of start at the beginning and work our way towards the end. Because I did think it was interesting that you thought the beginning was boring. Because I feel like the actual beginning where they get there, they're exploring the island, and then they slowly come to realize, like, what's happened. I think that is, like, one of the strongest parts of the book. Because it there's this sort of eerie feeling, and they're, like, beginning to realize exactly what's happened. And there's this very creepy scene where they go into the treasure vault, and then they have to, like go back out and sleep with the door to the treasure vault at their backs. And they're like, you know, they're in this this creepy deserted castle, but it was once their castle, but it's been thousands of years. And I really loved that as a kid. And I think it's once you hit the Caspian flashback that the pacing problems of the book really start. So I was curious how you felt about that bit. I did actually like, at first, the gradual nature of discovery. And I thought... It was a nice way because literally we we are just shot straight into the story. And so it's a nice kind of step to slow things down a bit. And you sort of have the kids gradually remembering what's going on. And you sort of establish the character dynamics where Peter first realizes what's going on. And Susan is cast early on in the role of the skeptic. And... They retrieve their gifts from from Santa Claus. Without Lucy's dagger, I want to just comment, Lucy also got a dagger, and they forgot it. Please continue. (laughs) Uh, So we see Susan get her bow and actually use her bow to disable one of the guards that is guarding this dwarf. Trumpkin, I think his name is. And it was a freaking headshot But then you find out, like, inexplicably afterwards that it actually didn't kill the guard. It just dazed him and caused him to fall off the boat or whatever. And it's like, come on, C.S. Lewis. If you're going to have people murder, make them murder. Don't do this whole, oh, but it it, it just glanced him in the helmet. And it, it didn't actually kill him. It just knocked him out. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that, then? I've heard worse. Well. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's hear your counter-argument to this. I feel like this is going to be the first episode where you really get us full-on <laughs> arguing about things, which is, like, what we promised at the beginning, so glad it's finally here. I didn't mind the fact that, like, you find out, like, Susan's a little squeamish about killing it, and she will generally try not to. So, like, she deliberately shot to hopefully wound and not kill. And I, I don't mind But she mind shot that. the person in the freaking head. I don't mind the squeamishness about murdering. That's fine. I actually do appreciate that, that she seems to be the only person in this whole group that actually cares about not murdering people. But if you're going to shoot a man in the head with a freaking arrow, you know, there's going to be some damage to this person. Well, I mean, maybe there was damage and we don't actually know, right? We never get to find out about his fate. We just find out what Susan said she did. In my headcanon, he will have been knocked out and drowned because he fell into the water. So that's what I'm going to say. There you go. 
there's nothing in the book contradicting that <laughs> that thought. That aside, I did appreciate that it was all this nice little setup for them gradually reassuming their roles as their Narnian versions, I suppose, and, and establishing all that. And then, as you said, once the dwarf comes in to tell the story, and I just want, I do want to say, C.S. Lewis literally writes these words, okay? So the dwarf settled down and told his tale. I shall not give it to you in his words, putting in all the children's questions and interruptions, because it would take too long and be confusing. And even so, it would leave out some points that the children only heard later. But the gist of the story, as they knew it in the end, was as follows. And then literally, he spends the next 60 pages. How long did this conversation go if 60 pages was the short version of the story the dwarf told? What are you doing, C.S. Lewis? Yep. And I think it's a shame because I think that this section of the book introduces some of the most like interesting ideas. I just want to read like the first paragraph of this article by Matt Nicolatos on Tor.com. Uh, the article's name is We Are All Kings and Queens in Narnia, Prince Gatsby and the Son of Adam. And so I just thought it was really interesting. This is the world that is set up for us in that flashback that is unfortunately not like set up well. <laughs> so we can't fully enjoy it, but it's so interesting. Here's the first paragraph. Imagine, if you will, a political climate in which truth has been completely discarded. Even the history books are full of falsehoods that advance the narrative of those ruling the nation. Stories of the past have been ignored, abused, or outlawed. In the midst of this political rule, certain classes of people have been persecuted, harmed, sent into hiding. That is the world of Narnia during Prince Caspian. And Casey, this was just, I read like this part of the book and I was like, this is such a relevant, interesting idea. I was so pumped to like be in this world and have maybe some discussions about like, yeah, imperialism and colonialism. Unfortunately, not much is super done with that. The idea also of, of um, suppressing certain histories or certain version of events that allow you to basically supersede whatever you want to call it, natural law or status quo of things and, and assert yourself into power. I don't think any of us have to imagine that scenario because we're kind of living through it right now. I just wish that this story was, was flipped where it was about actually about Prince Caspian and then Pe Pevensies? Is that how you pronounce their name? Pevensies? Yeah, which I don't believe actually got their last name yet. <laughs> but yes, I think so. But that they came in, they came in as the cameo role and showed up at the end and brought the army with them and they could operate as, as a deus ex machina or whatever. You know, I mean, I do appreciate C.S. Lewis sort of literalizing the deus ex machina with, with literal God, but also some... <laughs> greek gods showing up or or just a bunch of like river gods all, all sorts of gods just show up i am the golden god of this place i reign supreme i i well i think that it could have been interesting if we did have it flipped with prince caspian as more of the actual protagonist you don't really get to see him grappling with the fact that like his people and his ancestors did conquer 
Narnia, and yet he's being called the true king of Narnia. I would have loved to see him trying to, like, topple the system and help out the Narnians and only taking on this role of the figurehead if they needed it for, like, political legitimacy with other nations or something, but actually trying to establish native Narnians as rulers of their own country. But there's this horrible, horrible quote, um, which I believe Truffle Hunter says, I think. Who's the the badger, by the way? He's he's a badger character. Yes, and he's very cute, and I generally adore (laughs) him. But uh, it is not men's country but it is a country for a man to be king of. Yeah. <sighs> Indeed. Yes. That, my biggest issue, I think, with the flashback, and it and it really is hilarious to me because, like, it's clear that he did it to abbreviate this section because, I mean, it's already 60 pages long, but, like, just how quickly the characters that Caspian runs into are just willing to accept that he is the one true king of Narnia, it takes like two sentences to convince Truffle Hunter that Caspian is king and they should fight for him. And Nicobrick, who's who's cast as an antagonist in this book, he once again is making these valid points about like, hey, who, who do we like? We don't even know this kid. Who is this person? Why should we follow him? Why should we trust him? <laughs> When it's like his ancestors who specifically drove us out and murdered us and persecuted us. And there was just absolutely no grappling with that. And it gets back to this hierarchy. There are the humans on top. There are, I guess the dwarves kind of come next. Because at least they can like reproduce with humans. Which is a thing that doesn't really go explored at all. But dwarves are able to sort of be good or bad. Right, so they have free will. It's the beasts who remain unchanging, and that's explicitly said. So the beasts are at the bottom of the totem pole here. They're um, also intrinsically of... good, which is a weird thing. That's I don't know how true that is, because there is the werewolf and the hag, which I don't know if they but technically not... fall on the beasts. No, level. they're not talking beasts. They're in that like weird dwarf range of like magical other creatures. I think along with like giants and stuff like that. But so, then like, the giant, there are good giants, but not human. I well, see, that's the, there's there's no sense of what the heck is going on here. You know, like you have these weird rules that seem to be established, and then there are exceptions that disprove the rules. It's not clear. <laughs> it is not clear at all where anyone falls. In, in terms of their status in Narnia. But one thing is for sure, men are on top just because... It's funny because constantly, constantly in this book, they refer back to the time when the Pevensies ruled as the Golden Age of Narnia. And I did joke in my notes at one point, at the end of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, we're told that the Pevensies go on a genocidal campaign against their enemies... And who are giants, dwarves, etc., etc. And could not one argue that regime of slaughtering people who oppose them, would that not establish the kind of systemic racism that is prevalent here? 
Yeah, it's I like mean, it's okay to like murder these lesser peoples because they are inherently bad or or not the same status. So really, the Pempices established the downfall of Narnia through their policies, and so it all goes back to them. They sabotage their own golden age. Well, I think Nicobrick actually brings that up. I think he says like. You know, it may have been a golden age for you, but, like, they weren't too nice to the dwarves. Like, my people didn't do too well under them. And I thought there was a lot of also interesting uh, dealing with, like, unfortunately, we're giving it in a very black and white way. And I wish it could have been a little more nuanced. But, like, you know, Nickabrick's understanding of history and, like, their ability to know what's true and what isn't true is difficult. Like, their entire history has been suppressed by the ruling class and they've had to like go into hiding and their ability to keep their culture and their history alive has been severely threatened and so there's this a few moments where Mickabrick is like hey like we don't know that the white witch was actually that bad there are things about the Pevensies that are not great so I I wish that could this is another thing that happens in the flashback for like two seconds and then (laughs) we we don't get that, like, built up on. And, yeah, maybe if they had, instead of doing the flashback, either either move the book to Caspian's perspective, in which case maybe we could spend more time dwelling on these things. Yeah. Or if they actually allowed Trumpkin and the kids' dialogue to happen, it could be interesting to see, see um, Trumpkin, like, say something about history that the Pevensies know are, is wrong because they were there. And, like, see that clash of, like, what the history actually is and what people think it is. That could have been fascinating. Or you have a situation where, like, Trump can bring something up and the Pemvinsies say, like, oh, that's not true. That can't possibly be true. But it is, in fact, true. And they just were completely unaware of it. So you have these alternative histories that went completely unexplored because the people in power just weren't even aware of it and wouldn't have even recognized it as as an issue. I do want to pause and bring up here just really quick to the racism sort of inherent in the fact that Nickabrick is a black dwarf. Like specifically a black dwarf. I don't know if this is the case in your version, but at least for me it specifies that it's black hair, not black skin. Because there are red dwarves are white as well who have red hair. Nonetheless, it's he is referred to as a black dwarf and there is this stratification even there between black dwarves who are the ones who are more likely to be quote unquote evil and the red dwarves who Trumpkin is one of them and they're more likely just to go along with things. It's uh, this book is so all over the place in terms of what it's trying to say that it's basically nonsensical. The politics of this are completely nonsensical. There's no reason why Prince Caspian should be king. There's no reason why anyone should trust Prince Caspian. Do they not remember that there were nine previous King Caspians who participated in oppressing them and persecuting them? Not to sound like a broken record, but this book is so f***ing sloppy. And in fact, it might be the sloppiest book we've read so far. Even compared to Horse and His Boy. Horse and His Boy is more consistent. It's super racist, but at least it's consistent. (laughs) Yeah, I think 
Prince Caspian plotline and everything's going down with the Telemarines and then sort of like the little return to Narnia adventure story of the Pevensies uh, don't really gel together in a cohesive way. Especially because I feel like the climax of the Pevensies story is not the climax of the Caspian story. It's their moment of following Aslan. I think that's where their character arcs kind of end and everything after that is like wrapping up the Caspian plotline but like yeah, it's this weird thing where the two plot lines have, there's no relevance in like belief, which is like, I guess the Pevensey's entire plot line is sort of about belief with the Caspian plot line, which has <laughs> nothing to do with that. Even though Peter helps by like drafting the letter and doing the duel with Moraz, like for the most part, after they have the, the scene with Aslan where they are all eventually are able to see him. It feels like their character arcs kind of wrap up. I mean, for sure, Lucy's does. And I think Susan's does, too, definitely, for sure. You could maybe make an argument about the boys. But I think Edmund's arc is also sort of about, you know, seeing that Edmund has grown beyond his line, the witch in the wardrobe self, to actually, he he believes Lucy. He, like, is like, she was right that time. I'm going to trust in her this time. And... Therefore, he becomes, like, the second person to see Aslan, which is kind of amazing when you think about how far Edmund's come. But it does feel strange that then they continue to be in the story after that. You know what I mean? Like, this is kind of the big dramatic moment for them. That's the thing. That's why the last 30 or so pages just completely falls flat for me. Because especially the duel. Like, I get what you were saying earlier about... Edmund having his character moments where he's describing the duel. I guess those are fun, but it's like I once again was asking the question, but what's at stake for Peter besides bodily harm? Like what what are we learning about Peter that we didn't know before? And the the answer is nothing, really, because there isn't anything at stake for his character in that moment. And I think you're right. It's because their character arcs are over. So there's nothing more to be had with them. So like making them completely central to the ending of the book just feels like a complete misread on C.S. Lewis's part about what his story even is. I don't even know what this story even is. Like, I don't know what the the broader points. I think that, yeah, we're struggling with the sort of the two different parts of this book that is one the actual like fantasy political narrative of what's happened to Narnia and what's going on with Caspian and all of that and then the more religiously coded narrative of the Pevensies and they don't go together and it's like it's not like anything the Pevensies learn on their little you know journey to get to Caspian then enables them to help Caspian in a better way it's also not like they were crucial at all i guess like it's not like they had some knowledge of something that they brought with them that was super helpful the only thing like it seems like aslan is already kind of returning there and so aslan could have potentially woken up all of the creatures and stampeded over the army regardless of the pevensies being there actually that reminds me there's this moment earlier on where they spend 10 pages before they leave uh, the ruins of care care 
Per what what is the name of the I, castle? I've been saying Care Paraval. I'm not sure if that's actually how it's pronounced, but that's what I'm rolling with. I, I can't keep track of the names. Anyway, they're talking <laughs> with the dwarf and they're about to get ready to leave, and they're all making a big brouhaha about how they need to leave now, they need to leave quickly, but they apparently have time to do a montage of all the kids' different skills. First Ed has a little little duel with Trumpkin, and then Susan freaking shoots an apple from a hundred yards away or something crazy. And then Lucy's like, I'm going to heal you. And they all have to spend 10 pages showing off their uh, skills, quote unquote, I guess, exhibiting their value to the story. Except none of that becomes relevant in the story. I don't think Susan ever uses her bow again. After that, Lucy heals Reap-a-Cheap. Reap a cheap! I can't believe we've gone this long without commenting yes, on him. Who he got shafted by this story. There's another rant coming. Just be warned. So Lucy uses her thing once. Casey here. Have to make a minor correction. Lucy, in fact, uses her cordial twice. Once on Trumpkin and once on Reap a cheap. My bad. And honestly, I don't really care enough about Susan to double check if she actually uses her bow a second time. So if I'm wrong, just let me know. All right. Okay. Back to the podcast. Edmund doesn't participate in any duels, so there's no point of him showing off his skills other than I guess you could argue, well, it's also suggests that like peter would be good at dueling too or i don't know so you have all these things that are being set up that have absolutely no payoff (laughs) in any way and so everything just constantly falls flat for me in this book and that's the frustrating thing for me because there does seem like an interesting story about prince caspian trying to rightfully assume the throne and grappling with this this history of his you know being a descendant of people who have subjugated talking beasts and and have conquered narnia and basically ripped it out of its quote-unquote golden age and having to actually do the work of winning back the trust of narnia that would have been so cool to watch but instead truffle hunter just decides that like caspian is good and then Literally, Truffle Hunter takes on all the duties of explaining who Caspian is and justifying his position. And that's all based, of course, on him, the fact that he's a human and therefore is meant to rule over Narnia and specifically a son of Adam. And there's no indication that, like, is he right for this position? Would he be a good king? But none of that is explained in this book. We do not see Caspian ruling really at any point. There are a few scenes where we see him sort of operating in a a position of authority and making decisions. Really, the biggest one is him murdering (laughs) Nicobrick. That's like his one decision as a ruler. (laughs) And like it was justified because they're talking about bringing the witch back. And I think they attack first anyway. But the point is, wouldn't it have been interesting, Morgan, to have seen Caspian struggle with trying to claim his authority as king 
and to try to prove himself throughout the course of this story. Yeah, I think that could have been a really interesting way of telling this story. I think potentially another way, if you wanted to keep the focus on the Pevensies, is have them come back and have Caspian not have, like, rebelled yet and have them trying to, like, like, them discovering how much the world has changed since they left and everything that's happened by actually experiencing it and not just, like, having it told to them and have them you know, build up a little Narnian coalition and maybe find out about Caspian through um, his tutor, who we haven't talked at all about, uh, Dr. Cornelius, and then trying to bring Caspian into the fold. And, like, there could be, like, a very interesting, like, rebellion planning with the Pevensies helping the native Narnians get their groove back. But no. We got... We got a little bit of, like, everything. And I think that one of the reasons I like this book is not necessarily for the, like, obviously cohesive plot, because it's not a cohesive plot, but I love so many scenes in this book. I think there's some really excellent scenes and moments. They don't all gel together. But I, I mean, we've already talked about loving the scene where with Nickabrick in the cave, and I love the scene when they're discovering again what Care Paraval is. I also love like both of the scenes of, of Lucy seeing Aslan for the first time. And yeah, the scene where she convinces the others to follow her and they have to like go through the gorge kind of just trusting that she can see Aslan. I think they're just so many good moments. I mean, I also like the duel, as I said, but like, yeah, they just don't. They don't gel cohesively, and so we don't really get a full plot that's <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I think now that we are four books into reading this series, what a pattern I'm noticing is that C.S. Lewis touches on interesting themes. The problem is, is that either he doesn't realize they're there, or he's making those implications, or... He chooses the most boring way to explore them. <laughs> or like, because it's like, I think C.S. Lewis explicitly wrote about this book that it is about returning of the quote unquote true religion to a world that has been corrupted. And he touches on that in ways that I think are actually interesting, where you have these competing narratives from the Telmarines from the dwarves, from the Pevensies, and you have this opportunity for all of them to clash in this really interesting, meaningful way, but they don't because C.S. Lewis has gone in with the assumption, well, the Pevensies' history is the true history, and there is no question about that. And so there isn't an opportunity to actually explore any of these other narratives because everything, well, it has to go this one way. But I agree. I There are certain scenes that I think are interesting to explore. And the one I think that you want to really explore is the one where Lucy sees Aslan and, and has to, like, convince everyone else that she sees him and get them to follow her. Yeah, I think that the when she's actually able to convince them is the climax of the Pevensies story. So we she sees him once. She's not able to convince them to go. Only Edmund is on her side. And so they go all the wrong way, and then she sees him again, and they actually talk this time. And Aslan's pretty much like, convince them to follow me, or just come yourself, 
So then she finally is able to convince them all to go. They are all eventually able to see Aslan. And I think we uh, brushed briefly over Susan. And I think this is a great place to talk about her because I think she has, she and Lucy probably have the strongest character arcs in that, yeah, as you mentioned, Susan comes back and she is now the skeptic. She's the one who's not sure. She doesn't initially believe it's Care Farabelle until they go into the treasure room. And she doesn't think it's actually Aslan. Later in the book, she says, oh, actually, I believed you all along, but I didn't go along with it for reasons. It's not really adequately explained. She basically is like, my fear held me back. Held you back from like walking up a hill? I don't understand that. I think that it's not necessarily made to make sense. (laughs) Like, And this is the setup for then later on, the Susan not going to Narnia heaven with the rest of them. You didn't even need an explanation there because we have this, it's being constantly asserted that Susan is trying to act like a grown-up and it's this drive to of believing I know better because I'm older, essentially, seems to be what's stopping her. And then C.S. Lewis feels like she he has to add that explanation at the end, which doesn't make any actual sense. Like, what he was setting up makes so much more sense than that. I mean, obviously, C.S. Lewis, to some extent, is positing that, like, children have more of an inherent ability to just believe in things and therefore to believe in religion and that we lose that as we grow up and become doubters. And so if you're talking about someone doubting religion, like, then someone said, like, I felt it was true in my heart all along, but, like, you know, I didn't, I was scared to fully commit to that or I was, you know something held me back that makes sense but it definitely yeah doesn't entirely make sense in this context i think i guess the fear is that they get led in the wrong way and then they're even later to get to caspian but like i you're right like how much urgency are (laughs) the pevensies really feeling to like go help this guy they've never heard of before they have time to freaking you know murder a bear and eat it (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) it's not i want to just say all the details about bear meat, I was really curious. I was like, is C.S. Lewis like intimately equated with bear meat? Like, does, does he eat bear meat? Uh, yeah. The allegorical significance of that moment doesn't translate well to the narrative. And so it just comes off as really clunky. But I, I do want to give him credit for setting up Susan as this skeptical character and allowing her to be... A contentious voice in this narrative and i think actually susan has so many great moments in this book like obviously we've already talked about her showing off her archery skills but also you know not wanting to like seriously hurt anyone i mean even like when she is having the shooting competition with trumpkin there's this moment where it says she was not enjoying her match half so much as Edmund had enjoyed his, not because she had any doubt about hitting the apple, but because Susan was so tenderhearted that she almost hated to beat someone who had been beaten already, which is like such a sweet moment. And also, like, we find out she's a really strong swimmer. This is mentioned multiple times. It comes to nothing. <laughs> and also, when they're rowing the, rowing the boat, at first, Peter, Edmund, and Trumpkin are rowing. And I was like, ah, sexism. Boys are so... But then Edmund switches out with Susan and Susan rows. And the only reason Lucy doesn't row is because Lucy's too small. So I was like, (laughs) I do love that we got like 
more moments of Susan being a cool dynamic character. Unfortunately, again, she and Lucy are sent off with Aslan on his awakening quest to do nothing while the boys are doing like political maneuvering. But I will say like great book for Susan. Also like great book for Lucy. We get a little bit more understanding of her as someone beyond just the sweet, good little girl. Her little chat with Aslan, she's like bitter about her family ignoring her and like, she's, like, whining to him about it. Yeah. <laughs> and they they have a good conversation about, like, could she have done more? Could she have been more assertive? I think we get more, more dynamic moments with her. And I will also say the two scenes, like, right before she sees Aslan, where she's in the trees and they're almost waking up, are some of the most beautifully described moments in the book. I will agree with that. I do want to comment on... Susan having a lot of great moments in this book because I don't think the book agrees <laughs> because there was one line it didn't make me laugh where literally the narrative says Susan was the worst <laughs> no it's I think I know what moment you're saying it's in context of her like responding to Lucy waking them all up and being like I see Aslan we all need to go now but it's just like the, <laughs> the way it's framed. And there, it's not just that line because there's another line later. It describes how for Peter, Lucy is his favorite sister. And it's just like, ouch, man. I feel like that's the same line because that's definitely where I was going. And yeah, I was like, Peter, honestly, you're the worst. Because he's like, um, at any other time, he would have said something nice to Lucy, who was his favorite sister. And I'm like, hey, hey. <laughs> Because you always do get the impression, at least I always did in the books, probably until I read this line, but like Peter and Susan are closer and Edmund and Lucy are closer at this point because like the age differences, those are like the people that are closest in age to each other. And then just Peter drops the bomb of like, <laughs> or the narrative drops the bomb that like Lucy is Peter's favorite sister, not favorite sibling, favorite sister. Yes. So he apparently has like, I mean, okay, I do have siblings, and you you do rank siblings when you're a kid, but Peter is old enough he should not be ranking his siblings. It really, really doesn't seem like anyone likes Susan in this book, even though she, by far, in my opinion, has the most interesting moments in this book in terms of her character actually having flaws and actually working on those flaws, but it's just a thing that... It's interesting in a vacuum, and the narrative doesn't seem to realize that. Stay tuned for part two next week on Reread. Bye-bye. the wit of a toad and the brain of an ant. So let me tell you first that you are the worst.